Turn to Acts chapter 16. We're looking at a pretty large passage this morning. 16, 11 through 40. The fruit of obedience. This is not my opening illustration. I've got a different one, but maybe y'all know the name of this fruit. There's some fruit in, I want to say Vietnam. I've just seen it on the social medias here recently. Uh, that smells nasty and tastes worse than it smells. Anybody familiar with what I'm talking about? I just came to mind, wish I'd looked better. Well, I don't like any fruit. So, you know, I eat apples. That's it. And I like jelly because sugar. Um, but I don't like fruit. So, so fruit is not a, 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 a tempting, a temptation for me. Uh, to, that, that, that doesn't work for me necessarily, but for some of you it does, but not all fruit, if you take that fruit in Asia, not all fruit tastes good. It's, not all fruit is edible. Pyracantha bushes make fruit, but you don't want to eat them. Uh, holly bushes make fruit, but you don't want to eat it. So fruit sometimes is not the fruit we want. Well, that's, again, not my opening illustration. I've got a different one, but that just, in my head, that was incredibly profound. Um, Lieutenant General... Uh, as soon as my page comes up, there we go, Frederick Morgan. Now, unless you are an extreme history buff, Andy is still uh, preaching in his interim position over north of Jennings, so uh, Andy Buckley can't be here to nod at me that he knows who this is. But unless you are just, I mean, really in tune to uh, World War II history, you don't know who this guy is. Who recognizes him? Who knows him? Okay, oh, all right, well, military guy, he, he knows who he is. He uh, was, in the spring of 1943, appointed chief of staff, supreme allied commander, middle of World War II, supreme allied commander. Eisenhower actually took over that role, Dwight Eisenhower took over that role at the end of 1943. His job, what he began was the planning of D-Day. Nearly uh, uh, over one year of planning for this invasion of D-Day on uh, June 6th, 1944. Now, the, the actual operation, D-Day is what we think of, but the actual operation, the, the um, Operation Overlord, did not end until somewhere around August 21st, 1944. So we think of D-Day... Uh, we think of, uh, we had a neighbor in Nixon who was in his early 90s, and I cannot remember his name, Ira, can't think of his last name now, who, was, uh, who, who went on to the beach D-Day plus one, so June 7th. He, uh, when he told me that and I got to stand there and shake the man's hand, that was just incredible to me. Uh, and and it, it's just so sad that we're losing that generation so quickly, but... Uh, D-Day was just the beginning of it, June 6th, 1944. On that one day, D-Day, uh, the Allies took 10,000 casualties. For the entire Operation Overlord, they took 225,000 casualties. D-Day involved some 7,000 naval vessels. I think it was uh, 2,500 planes, 150,000 men of America, Canada, and Britain. Incredible work, incredible planning, and an incredible event. 
uh, all that led to May 8th, 1945, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. But it was unfathomable costs for a strip of beach. It's a little longer than this, but it wasn't much when you're considering all of Europe. This one little strip of beach on the northern coast of France, uh, of France across the Engl uh, English Channel from Britain. A strip of beach. But it was a necessary endeavor for the greater mission. That incursion, that beachhead would win World War II, at least be the beginning of the winning of World War II. That one day, June 6, 1943, would be the beginning of the end of World War II. Huge cost, huge uh, amount of, of planning, and Churchill went to bed uh, thinking, they, they all went to bed thinking the casualties would be in the 30,000s. Ish. They would th were thinking it would be a success if the casualties were 30,000 or less. Eisenhower had already written his letter taking full responsibility if it had failed. And it didn't go exactly as planned. There were issues all around, but it, the day was won by the Allies. And World War II was won because of this beachhead. In our passage today, Paul is establishing a beachhead for Europe in Philippi. Now, he's not taking it by force. That's not the way the gospel works. Far too often in the history of Christendom, the gospel has been, the attempt has been made to share the gospel by force, and that is not what Paul is doing here. But he is taking a beachhead for Europe. This is his first incursion into Europe, and it comes at great cost, but it is a necessary endeavor. It must begin here. Our theme today, our idea behind the music that we sang, the calling and the trust and the fact that God is with us and that he is good even in our negative circumstances. When God is working, the fruit of obedience doesn't always look like worldly success. We have in mind sometimes that if we are obedient to God, then everything will be great. We will have the, the right numbers in Sunday school or the right numbers in worship or our lives will be fine. We won't experience trials. We will have all the money that we need. Nothing will go wrong. And that is the complete opposite and makes a lie of Scripture that tells us obedience is not the idea of worldly success. That when God is working, the fruit of obedience doesn't always, and I would say almost never, works like, looks like worldly success. We're going to take the, the passage in chunks this morning. I'm not going to read the whole thing first. Uh, I'm going to read it in, in little bits. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you that will have exactly what we have on the screen here. And keep in mind as we move through this, don't lose sight of the fact we've, we've been in Acts for quite some time and we're going to continue to be in Acts for quite some time. Let's not lose sight of the fact that we're talking about the first church, what we've been talking about since we started Acts. We're talking about the church to the world 
And, and don't lose sight of the fact that while we're tracking with the beginning of the church, first church, not first Baptist church, but first church, we're seeing the example of how we should be as the church today. We don't mimic everything exactly that the first church did, but we take the principles, we take the lessons from what they did, and there are some great lessons here this morning. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15 are what we are looking at first. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, a Roman colony in a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her husband were baptized, I'm sorry, after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Let's remember briefly that Paul leaves Antioch with kind of a nebulous mission. He moves northwest into what is now Turkey. He visits a few churches that he had already been to. He wants to turn left and go southwest into what was then called Asia. It would have just been the western end of Turkey, and the Holy Spirit stops him. He wants to turn right and go into Bithynia, which would have been north to northeast, kind of toward the Black Sea, and it says the Spirit of Jesus stopped him. So he's got nowhere to go but straight, and he ends up at Troas looking across uh, the Dardanelle Straits to Macedonia, what would in our day become uh, Greece. And that vision of the Macedonians saying, come to Macedonia. We need you in Macedonia. He gets that vision, and now he goes. And he's already had a very successful missionary journey, that first missionary journey where he went up through kind of north and, and eastern uh, Turkey and visited Galatia and Derba and Lystra and all those places. And uh, he's kind of got a pattern now. Go to the synagogue, talk to them first, and when they have converts, so many that the synagogue kicks him out, then he goes to the Gentiles. Well, he goes to Philippi first, and what he gets, what he receives is unmet expectations in Philippi. Now we're told in the scripture that Philippi is a great city. We're told it is a, uh, it's a Roman colony and uh, that just meant that well, in this particular case it was a very old city. It was named for Philip, Alexander the Great's daddy, if you remember your Western Civ class from what ninth or 10th grade or something like that. Uh, Alexander the Great's daddy. It had been a place where um, Mark Antony had fought uh, Brutus, and after they killed, you know, Etu Brute, after that, they battled, and, and Mark Antony won, and Brutus lost, and that was there, and, and because the people had supported them, supported the winners, it's always nice to come out on the winning side, Philippi became a Roman colony, which meant you are as important, even if you're not as big, you are as important and have all the same perks of Rome. So Philippi was just a little Rome. This was a great place to start a mission uh, mission work. It's a great city. The difference here is, and we see this in the passage, he, it says that uh, 
they, when they got there, they stayed several days. On the Sabbath, they went outside the city gate by the river. Paul, why didn't you go to the synagogue? It is your habit to go to the synagogues. There was no synagogue here. For a synagogue to exist, you had to have ten male head of households. That was the way it worked. And here, apparently, there weren't enough Jewish men in all of Philippi to have a synagogue. So there was no synagogue in the town. All that was there that we see recorded by Luke was a group of female Jews. Jewesses, we, we would have uh, called them probably uh, a few years ago. Uh, some of the commentaries I read still did. And, he, and they are down by the river. And uh, that was a, uh, a law or a, a, an accommodation. If there's not a synagogue, go to a running river or the sea where you can do baptism when you need to as a synagogue. And that's what these ladies were doing. They were down there uh, praying on the Sabbath day as they should have been. Paul goes down there. This is what he finds. Now, keep in mind uh, that they had uh, that women in Macedonia had much more power and freedom than they had anywhere else in the known world at the time. Uh, it was not as patriarchal there. They they had the ability to run businesses. They had the ability to. Uh, make decisions. This is why uh, we see actual inscriptions from churches at the time where there are deaconesses in Philippi. Uh, Paul's letters reference the authority that women had in this church. And what we kind of see now is though the uh, scripture is not very clear, uh, well, no, I take that back. Though scripture says a Macedonian man said to Paul, turns out, not that he misread who was standing there, but the call was actually from, figuratively, this woman. Lydia, figuratively, was calling out to Paul, come to Macedonia. Just an interesting side note. And Paul, there by the river, in their time of prayer, Witnesses to these ladies, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, verse 14, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira was listening. Incidentally, do you know where Thyatira was? You probably don't. You might. It was in Asia, where Paul had wanted to go, where he wanted to turn left. That's where Thyatira was. This is a, a lesson for missions. We are looking at, as a church, coming alongside a, uh, an Hispanic, uh, Spanish-speaking church in New Orleans that is primarily reaching out to 60,000 Hondurans that live in New Orleans. There are more Hondurans in New Orleans than, anywhere else in the con- than, than everywhere else in the country. The concentration of Hondurans in New Orleans is very high. So we are looking at partnering with this church, coming alongside them and and helping them. But you know what that does when we reach Hondurans in New Orleans? That reaches Honduras. Because those folks go back and forth. They travel home. 
So if we give the gospel to one in New Orleans, we may be reaching 10 or 15 in Honduras and never travel down there. That's what's happening here. This is the picture of God saying, Paul, I know you want to reach Asia, and you're going to. As a matter of fact, you're going to go there eventually. But right now, I need you to reach Europe, and let me show you my sovereign hand at work. You're going to reach a lady in Europe whose family is back in Asia. And you're going to do more, exceedingly more, abundantly more than you think you thought you were going to do. You've got a plan, Paul. I've got a bigger plan. You've got good ideas, Paul. I've got great ideas. But right now, all we see is conversion of merely a household. That could have meant uh, her children. That could have meant her employees. She, she owns a very lucrative business. Purple dye was extremely uh, valuable in this day. And for her to be a, a dyer of, of cloth, she was very, very wealthy. So all her employees, maybe her children, we have no mention of a husband. So chances are she was a widow. And Paul reaches one house. Traveled all the way from Troas to Philippi for one house. No synagogue. One house. It's an expensive trip, Paul. Well, probably didn't meet his expectations either. Verse 16 through, seven, uh, through 18. Once... As we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, Luke is suddenly in the story, uh, followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out. Right, of, right away. I said Luke is suddenly in the story. He's been in the story since they uh, left Troas. I apologize for that. So we've got an unmet expectation in this mere household that gets saved. Suddenly we have a distracting mouth to the ministry. A distracting mouth to what God is wanting to do, at least in Paul's eyes, in this town. Her cry sounds almost worshipful. Do you know that there are people that can sound worshipful, but they're speaking for the devil? You don't know that. It's true. They can sound great. They can use all the right words, but what they're, the, where their words are coming from is the devil himself. And that's what we have here. She's saying what sounds like good things. These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. But if you change the inflection just a hair... You get sarcasm or belittling. You get something like, oh, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, they're the servants of the Most High God. Do you notice a difference between the way I said those two things? Was that, was that clear? I mean, I, okay, good. That's a huge difference. 
And that's most likely the way she was saying it. She was not going around uh, announcing the coming of this great gospel message. Listen to these men. She was a distraction to the crowds, a distraction to what God was wanting to do, to the gospel proclamation, a distracting mouth is always, a distracting mouth from the gospel is always a work of Satan and his demons. And we see now a recurring theme. We saw it on the island of Cyprus. We see magic, spiritual powers, superstition, pagan beliefs, all hindering the gospel proclamation. If this had been a good thing, if it were helpful for this little girl to run her mouth the way she was... Paul would have never cast out the demon, but we know that demon possession is never good. A distraction to the gospel and to the work of the Holy Spirit in a church or in a nascent church, in a uh, birthing church, is never a good thing. So Paul turns and he casts that demon out. Actually, Jesus, through Paul, delivers this girl, casts the demon out, stops the distracting mouth. Now, possibly she gets saved after this. I, I'm, I'm not sure how she couldn't. Luke doesn't tell us, so it's not important to the story, at least the way he's saying it. And we have the first miracle that we've had since chapter 14, verse 10. Remember, we talked about how uh, the, the, the trip from Antioch up to Troas, a thousand miles nearly of no miracles, no salvations, no conversions, no church pl churches planted, nothing. Suddenly we have the first miracle. It's because Paul is in the center of God's will. And the world rejoices that the demon was cast out, right? No. Verse 19 through verse 24. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, bringing them before the chief magistrates. They said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They're Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. So we've had unmet expectations. Paul thought he was going to get there and do some, wow, just tremendous things. We've got a distracting mouth. And now we have persecution and prison. This trip's going great, y'all, right? I mean, I have, been, I have planned some horrible vacations. Not, not vacations. It, it, usually the vacations are good. It's the one to two day excursions that I think and, and convince my wife and, and family members, hey, this will be a great idea. Let's go do this. And it is a dud. Just horrible. Don't ever take the Christmas train ride from Austin to Burnett, Texas. It is not enjoyable. I mean, if you like riding on trains, great. That's the extent of the enjoyment. Christmas lights, no. Junkyards and dirt, no Christmas lights. So, so I know a little of what it is to, to plan a trip and have these great expectations of what's going to work out, what's going to happen, and then nothing, and, 
and this is, you know, this is Paul. This is missionary. This is gospel stuff. Unmixed, uh, unmet expectations, a distracting mouth, persecution in prison. You know Paul at this point had to be going back. Did he say Macedonia? Maybe I misunderstood. Maybe it was Pasadonia. Maybe it was Pasadena. We're supposed to go to Texas? Any sort of excuse to try to figure out, how did I get this wrong? This is not going the way I thought it should go. Well, see what happened was, the gospel affected the pocketbook. The gospel just got into somebody's wallet. And when the gospel starts messing with those things... Sacred cows, things that you can have this, Lord, but you can't have that. Then we get problems when it comes to the gospel. And for these people, casting out the demon uh, that was in this slave girl, it affected them financially, and they weren't having any of that. So they make these accusations. They realized their prophet was gone. They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged him into the marketplace to the authorities. This is exactly the way it should work in a Roman colony like Philippi. And they say to them, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are, making, they are Jews and promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. They make three major accusations here based on one prejudice. They're Jews. Romans never did like Jews. They didn't. They, they just, they, uh, legally, they had to allow them to exist, but they never liked them. So these Jews are doing this. They, are, they, they made accusations based on law and order. See, they're disturbing us. They're, they're saying these things. Now, Paul and Silas hadn't done anything to disturb. Who had made the disturbance? Well, it was the distracting mouth of the demon that made the disturbance. Yet, they were being blamed for the disturbance. The disturbance was, you disturbed my profit. As long as you weren't messing with my money, I didn't care what you did. But you start messing with my money, and now you've taken a step too far. And accusations based on social repugnance. They said, these customs are not legal. And there were some laws that said Jews could not proselytize. Uh, well, it wasn't illegal, but it was heavily frowned on. Don't come in here with your other religion and try to convince us to pull away from ours. Sounds very much like what we face as Christians when we try to share the gospel today. No, oh, we don't need that. Uh, they're disturbing us. Uh, ugh, Christianity. But what these were were political hot buttons. We, we use the term to, terms today, red meat or dog whistles. The, the group, the crowd that was losing money off of the gospel presentations here were using phrases that they knew were going to stir people up. Because now, really, uh, the, the, the owners of the slave girl had become the distracting mouth. Because that's what distracting mouths do. Whatever I can say that I know will get me my way, whatever it is, that's what I'm going to say. And I'm going to say it over and over to anybody who will listen. These guys just had the correct ears to go to. The magistrates, the authorities. And so, they strip them. They cane them. They beat them with rods. 
and they put him in prison, and, and really they put him in more prison, uh, they got more prison attention than they really needed. I mean, it, they were really making an example of these two traveling Jewish missionaries who were stirring up trouble with these weird ideas of theirs. And they were going to take care of it. But God was working, wasn't he? The call was clear. They're supposed to be in Macedonia. There is no doubt. When we were planting our, our church in uh, Houston, in Humble, outside of Houston, there were a million days we wanted to quit. Now, we only worked at it for a couple of thousand days, but there were still a million days we wanted to quit. And we had been told numerous times that there are a mil- will be a million days when you want to quit. And what you have to go back to every time you want to quit is your call. Did God call you to this? And we couldn't deny it. We would go back to that call and Edda and I would uh, not argue with our, between ourselves, but we'd argue with God. God, did you really call us to this? And, and sure enough, he didn't. And God was working. He was always working. Every, every pastor, every ministry leader, every volunteer in the church has often wondered, is what I'm doing getting anywhere? And we all need to go back to that call. And we all need to look around and know God's working, isn't he? Verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and his family, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, And rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Oh, things kind of turn a little bit here, don't they? Unmet expectations, a distracting mouth, prison and persecution. But it turns out God was working anyway. Here around midnight after their uh, backs had been opened up with canes. And they were in these stocks that kept their legs spread wide and Probably their arms were chained to the wall as well. In their agony, they begin to worship. We see a miracle and we see conversion because God is always working. The miracles, the earthquake. The earthquake comes, it loosens the chains from the walls, breaks the stocks, doesn't hurt any of the prisoners or the jailer. And they're free to go. Peter did it, right? Peter uh, uh, was in jail, and the angel showed up. The angel said, get up, let's go. 
Paul and Silas choose to sit. I don't know if the Holy Spirit told them to sit, if they just thought, if we leave, they'll kill us. We don't know what they were thinking, but in God's providence, they sat. They were released, but they didn't leave. And the jailer could not believe it. He wanted to say, why are y'all still here? And he might have somewhere in there, and Luke just decided it wasn't necessary to record. But he looks around, realizes the doors are open, and says, they're going to kill me for this anyway. I'm going to make sure it's quick and easy. And he starts to probably shove the sword through his throat. That would have been the easiest, quickest way to take his life. And they holler out, Paul does, don't do it. We're here. I know it's dark in the jail. Maybe the jailer has a light in his room and they can see him standing in the door. It's a silhouette of the jailer standing there. He pulls the sword. Maybe Paul, just being a smart guy, I know what he's going to do if he finds that, if he thinks we're gone. He's going to kill himself. Let me, uh, I hear the sword. You remember when your daddy would take the belt off as he came up to the room? And you knew you were going to get it? it may have been flashbacks for Paul. Like, oh, it sounded kind of like the belt comes out of the scabbard he knows he's about to kill himself don't do it he comes in trembling how are y'all still here how are you still here and you know he heard the singing from the other room he probably uh, y'all shut up in there they didn't they sang paul preached he shared the gospel I had to do that to wake y'all up. We lost an hour last night. I had to do that to wake me up. And then he comes in, and his response shows what their response to persecution did as a witness to him. Y'all are still here. What's this you have? You've been preaching, you've been talking about this gospel, you've been talking about how we can be saved. Now at midnight you're singing, an earthquake comes, you could have left and you didn't. I want what you have. People, friends, family, loved ones, the world responds to us, to our Jesus, when we respond with holiness, with patience, with grace, with love, with worship, with acceptance to the persecution that we receive from the world for our faith. If we lash out, if we bark, if we bite, if we growl, if we cuss and we fuss, the world does not see anything different about us than it does does themselves. But when we respond as Paul and Silas do, with worship and prayer and proclamation of the gospel, the world says, how do you do that? And we say, Jesus. All we have to say. And Paul tells them, this is how. This is all it is. All it is. It's Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus, verse 31, and you will be saved. Takes them back. He feeds them. He cleans their wounds. Paul and Silas preach the gospel to them in the home. And the entire household gets saved. And here we have the conversion of merely a household. Two homes have gotten saved so far. Verse 35, when daylight came, the chief magistrates sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released. So come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, "Uh, they beat us in public without a trial. 
um, although we're Roman citizens and threw us in jail, and now they're going to send us away secretly? I don't think so. Certainly not, is what my translation says. Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, so they came to appease them, not to apologize, to appease And escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. Unmet expectations, a distracting mouth, uh, prison and persecution, yay, miracle and conversion, and now an official brush-off. Thanks, leave please. See, the magistrates messed up. Uh, Paul and Silas, at least Paul, but probably Silas, were Roman citizens. They had particular rights as Roman citizens that could not be violated. Uh, There should have been an investigation to the charges. There was no investigation. As Roman citizens, they could not be uh, 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 subjugated to degrading punishment, but they were. Uh, As Roman citizens, they could not be banned from cities unless it was for some heinous crime. And here, the magistrates were telling them to leave and don't come back. Roman citizens had rights in relation to the laws, and they were not being followed. The question that comes up is, why didn't Paul say something as they raised the cane, say, ooh, hey, Roman citizen here, don't hit me. We don't know. Maybe he did, and they didn't hear him in the tumult of the crowd yelling, beat him, beat him, these Jews. Maybe, Maybe Paul didn't want to distract from the gospel with his citizenship. Maybe he knew intuitively the Holy Spirit stopped him, whatever the case. He knew it was not time. But when it was time, he said, "Mm, we're citizens. You tell them to come and escort us out. And it says the magistrates appeased them. Not sorry, but maybe a sorry, not sorry. Could you go now? Because they could get in a lot of trouble. They could lose their jobs. They could be punished. For doing this. And we come to the end of the story. This chapter. They leave. They go to Lydia's house. Hey y'all. We're good. Uh, but we're going to go now. The mission continued. Two homes. What was our theme at the beginning? When God is working. And God had clearly called them. Clearly put them in Macedonia. The fruit of obedience doesn't always look like worldly success. If we step back from this passage and say, Paul, did you succeed? World, what do you think? No. Why? Because two houses, they got put in prison, beat, the girl that kept running her mouth, the issues that they had, now they've got to leave. They could have stayed longer, maybe witnessed to more people, grown the church, whatever, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. But no, they had to leave. This was a horrible, horrible journey. That is not the case when we are obedient. They had a beachhead into Europe, which we'd already talked about. They are going to begin now the gospel mission into Europe. In this few ver- these few verses, they reached all levels of society. Men, women, slaves, elite, fit officials, uh, uh, Gentiles, of course, because that's all that are here. Through their suffering, he could have said, uh, I'm a Roman citizen, don't beat me. But through his suffering, he legitimized the faith to everybody that saw Not only that, but because of his imprisonment, because of his suffering, the Philippian jailer got saved, him and his household. Do you believe Paul believed that beating was worth that man's salvation? 
Oh, yeah. Paul, absolutely. He wore those scars as a badge that he could suffer for Christ and that God would use that to reach somebody for Jesus. Absolutely. He loved that beating if it meant that jailer got saved. They were able to exemplify the mandate of the Jerusalem, Jerusalem letter. Go to the Gentiles. Go to the, out of this Roman city. Hardly any Jews at all. And they go and they stay with Lydia, a Gentile, for quite some time. They eat a meal at the Philippian jailer's house. They are living the letter that we just learned about in chapter 15. This also results in future missionary support. Uh, I don't remember if I put it on social media, but I encouraged our Wednesday night group to read Philippians this week before the message because the letter to Philippians was to Lydia and the Philippian jailer and, and their households and the church that started here. And he tells them, you and only you for much of the time have supported my mission work. She used the wealth that she had and others in that area to support the gospel going out. So future ministry support came from this excursion. Does that, does that look like a lack of success? That looks like God working in a million different ways through a million different people through this one man who said, I'm going to be faithful when God calls, no longer disobedient, but obedient to do what he says, and I'm going to go to Europe. That's what God does when we are faithful. We have no idea the future impact of our present obedience. We don't know what God is going to do. It may look slim, it may look small, and we may say, God, it's just one household. God, I'm going to be persecuted. And he says, wait and see what I do with that one household, that one persecution. Our only responsibility is obedience as Christians. That's it. Our only Therefore, how are we going to define obedience? We do obedience. Obedience is the success. Not numbers, not people, not money, not uh, big households, not lack of persecution, not lack of pain, but obedience. If we are obedient, we're successful. That's the message of the passage today. God's clearly calling you. This morning, there's a man standing before you. It's not me. Might be me. A man standing before you, calling out to you. Unbeliever, that man is Jesus Christ. He's not Macedonian, he's Jewish. He doesn't look like me, maybe the beard, but the skin's much darker. Probably curlier hair. And he's calling you. He's calling you to come to him. He is clearly calling for you to be saved. And like the Philippian jailer, you can ask this morning, what must I do to be saved? Well, admit that you're a sinner. This will be the message that Paul gave him. Admit that you're a sinner. Repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you. I know that I'm a failure as far as holiness goes. And I can't do anything about it. I repent of that, turn from it, and ask you to forgive me, God. But not based on my own merit, because we must believe that Jesus is the perfect Son of God who died for our sins. It is on His merit that we believe. It is on His merit that we are saved. And then we choose to follow Jesus by giving our life to Him. God is clearly calling you 
unbeliever, someone who's never trusted Jesus Christ. Believer, he's calling you to Macedonia. Where's Macedonia? It's across the street. It's at the grocery store. It's at the restaurant. It's New Orleans and a Honduran church plant. It's Spain or Honduras or Cuba or Indonesia or India or Texas, you know, foreign countries. But he's calling you. There's no one in this room who has not been called either to salvation or to the mission.